Have you ever found yourself grappling with emotions that seem to take on a life of their own? Or torn between gratitude and fear, not knowing which to feel? Well, you're not alone. Hi, and welcome to Kidney Cancer Unfiltered, the podcast by the Kidney Cancer Association, diving deep into the raw stories of kidney cancer patients and survivors. I'm Anaria Scacha, your guide through the real unfiltered experiences that often go untold. Today, we are joined by expert Lauren Burling with the Cancer Support Community. Burling, a therapist and clinical oncology social worker, unpacks the heavy emotions people with cancer often feel through their journey. Together, we'll discuss the evolving landscape of psychosocial care, the stigma faced by survivors, and the cancer-related worries like scanxiety that never seem to go away. We'll also explore practical steps you can take to find mental health support and techniques to manage your emotions independently. So whether you're personally facing these challenges or you know someone who is, stick around for a tale of understanding, empathy, and most importantly, resilience. So my name is Lauren Burling. I am an oncology social worker. Um, I am a licensed clinical social worker in the state of Pennsylvania and in the state of New York. I live in upstate New York, um, and I work for Cancer Support Community Headquarters currently, um, have been working in healthcare and oncology settings uh, for the better part of the last 10 years. So, um, yeah. How did you get into the line of work specific mm-hmm. to oncology? So I um, went to school with every intention to go into foster care for my line of work to be a foster care social worker. And I had a mentor who um, in Philadelphia at Penn Medicine, um, uh, he uh, actually he was at the Bryn Mawr School of Social Work, but he um, he said to me, you know, I have this internship opportunity at Penn and I just thought you would be would be great. And I totally trusted him and ended up um, working in an inpatient um, hospital in Philadelphia, working with people who were hospitalized going through chemotherapy um, for a blood for blood cancers. Um, so that was 11 years ago. And that kind of just changed my, my whole trajectory from there. That's awesome. Yeah. That's, and that's one thing I wanted to touch on before we touch on more of the personal Mm -hmm. ways that we can manage our emotions, Mm -hmm. but, and correct me if I'm wrong with the numbers, but I know, you know, at least 40%, um, if not more, maybe more of like cancer survivors and patients, Mm -hmm. you know, are either diagnosed or experience sometimes of distress, Mm -hmm. but I believe maybe 5%, a low number of them actually receive the care, mental health care. And I think part of that might be the way we approach oncology care, right? Like we really focus on that physical, how can, like, why is it that, you know, such, such a small percentage of cancer survivors and patients actually receive the mental health care that they need, even though such a large percentage of us, Mm -hmm. myself included, are Mm -hmm. experiencing anxiety and stress. Um, this is, this is a really good question. And I think if we look at our general population, even outside of cancer, we can see that people are typically have a lot of barriers to getting mental health care, just in the general population, that health insurance is a barrier, that 
access to private therapists is a barrier. Many private therapists don't take health insurance or they have wait lists that are very full. It can be um, stigmatizing to walk into a behavioral health clinic um, for care, which is one way that people typically get access to behavioral health care. Sometimes they have to just, they can't even get an appointment. They just have to walk into a clinic and hope for the best. So if our general population is having a hard time getting access to mental health care, and then you go to this very specific subgroup of people who are experiencing cancer, you just take all of the same issues that most people are having getting counseling and access to mental health services, and then you multiply it by like 100, right? Because then you have a cancer diagnosis, you have medical appointments that are two, three times maybe every day while you're in active treatment, you have co-pays that are a barrier. Um, so time is a barrier and also just feeling well enough to get that care can be a barrier, right? Because if you don't feel well, just the motivation to make the calls you need to make to get that support can feel really overwhelming to yeah. both first general population and then thinking about our patients with or our people, you know, that have a, a cancer diagnosis. So I think it's access, it's coverage, it's availability of practitioners. And then what I hear from a lot of people is that they'll meet with a therapist for the first time. They'll go in hoping for the best and really having just, um, you know, the hope that it's going to be a great fit. And then they find that that person maybe just isn't comfortable talking mm. about their diagnosis or they just don't have the experience. Um, and a lot of therapists and practitioners do have like general overview of ability to talk about serious illness, but there is a very small subset, I think, of people that have um, that really be their focus. Mm -hmm. um, so I'll wrap up this question because I can go on and on, but I find that people really are wondering like, where are the cancer therapists? Where are the therapists out there that just do this? And that's where I think people feel a little frustrated is that's a very, very, very specialized group of people. So then you even find that um, it can be hard to tap into that. So it's it, saying all that doesn't sound very affirming or optimistic, but I know that more and more cancer centers are now embedding therapists into their cancer clinics and looking for models of behavioral health care to embed right there because they recognize that access is a huge issue. Yeah. And I would, I would say for me personally, that, that later point of therapists, you know, not many being specialized in this type of care. I found that to be true very much for myself, you know, going to my oncology office and, and they do have a social worker in there, but she's more focused on different types of needs and care in oncology. So it's like, I have to rely on my therapist. And while I love her, there's certain things about the cancer experience that you, you kind of need to be trained in. And so I do want to get back to the access question, of course, but I wanted to talk about and touch on the stigma um, part of your response and just, you know, what are the type I can go on forever about the types of stigmas I yeah. experience as a cancer survivor, but in, in your professional view, what are some of the types of stigmas that cancer survivors experience, whether internally or externally, um, that prevent them from seeking care beyond not having access to it, possibly. Wow. Gosh, it's so big and it's so hard. Um, the one thing that I think about when it comes um, 
to stigma is that cancer-related depression and anxiety can feel like um, sometimes it's hard first and foremost to know what is a side effect from your illness and your treatment and how much of it is like a separate diagnosis. So first, just kind of understanding that um, that it could, some of your symptoms could be related to the disease in your treatment and some could be truly a new diagnosis of major depression or anxiety related, unrelated to your, to your diagnosis or of course linked. Um, most things are, are linked and connected. Um, I find that sometimes people don't want more attention on them, right? So when you go into mm -hmm. your cancer clinic and you're filling out the distress screens, some people don't know what that information is going to be used for. Mm -hmm. So when you're filling out these forms that measure your distress or ask you questions about your mood, I sometimes find that people kind of um, know maybe how to answer a certain way so that they don't kind of get too many red flags, right? So that mm. they don't get all of those calls like, hey, you know, we reviewed your forms and we saw that you're feeling X, Y, and Z. And it's very different to feel those things, I think, and then also to be ready to talk about them. And um, with all of the other things people are going through in treatment, it may not be the thing they, they prioritize when they're meeting with their oncologist for that 20-minute visit, you know, once a month or quarterly. Um, and then, of course, going into a behavioral health clinic, which a lot of our patients do need to do to get access to care. Maybe they're not able to get a private therapist appointment. They don't have health insurance coverage for it. Um, if their primary insurance is Medicaid, they might need to walk into a behavioral health clinic and get like an, um, get, um, uh, an intake appointment um, without scheduling one in advance, which I'm in um, the upstate New York area, which is how a lot of our behavioral health mm. clinics work. Um, you don't make an appointment, you just walk in. And so some of the, the people you might be there waiting in the waiting room with may have very different needs than you. So you're sitting there, someone experiencing cancer, someone with um, an immunocompromised health, you know, you may not feel comfortable walking into a behavioral health clinic with 10 other people. Um, so when I think about stigma, I think about that because I do think sometimes people with cancer, they, they say, you know, my issues are different. Um, yeah. You know, this is, this is just different than another type of mood disorder, another type of psychiatric disorder. Um, and they may not feel like it's the right place for them to walk in. So how can we yeah. then push past that, that bear, that very real barrier? What are the, I guess, things that one cancer survivors yeah. and patients can do for themselves? Because it's, you know, it's easy to say, well, you know, do it anyway, right? Go into the clinic anyway. Like you need, yeah. it's so easy to say, just do it, mm -hmm. like get over mm -hmm. it and do it. Mm -hmm. Um, but that's not the way like we destigmatize things. I, like that's yeah. not the way it works. So like, what are yeah. some of the small steps that we can take as survivors to mm -hmm. kind of push past that stigma so we can get the help we need? And yeah. I think also as people, and you can answer this in two parts um, sure. because it's two parts, um, mm -hmm. but also as people in that support circle, you know, what are some things that we can't, you know, they can do to help us, you know, I don't want to say deal with, but like, you know, mm -hmm. cope with and and move through and really be yeah. honest with ourselves about how we feel. Yeah. 
I'll answer this in a couple of parts. So the first suggestion I have for people other than just push through, right, is I always validate to people that this is, this is hard. Getting a therapist to call you back is hard. Getting a psychiatrist to call you back is hard. If you can, I like to let people know that making three or four phone calls is normal to have to find somebody. Um, making three or four phone calls or three or four outreach attempts to find either a therapist or a psychiatrist that are accepting new patients with your insurance can be what it takes. So if a family member can help you make those phone calls, that's great. Um, but just know that if for some reason the first person you call isn't accepting new clients, see if you can have a second or a third person um, in your back pocket to try as well. You know, space out when you're making the calls as well. You know, if I have 10 minutes today to spend on this, you know, that's 10 minutes of time well spent. Maybe you make that second phone call the next day or the following day. Um, don't be discouraged if the first person you talk to doesn't feel like the right fit for you. Again, really normal to have to maybe talk to a second or a third therapist to really feel like you're, you found that right fit to work with. Um, for caregivers, I would say if they can also seek their own help outside of the person experiencing cancer, um, it's pretty normal for caregivers to want to help find, uh, you know, mental health care for their loved one. And sometimes, like just going through treatment is enough, right? Mm -hmm. So maybe they need to get through treatment and, t and then start you know, therapy. That doesn't mean that the caregiver can't also decide that mental health care for them in that moment is, is important, right? So the caregiver yeah. can also be doing the same thing for themselves. Um, and also, I always encourage, sometimes caregivers want to come with the person to their therapy appointments or psych psychiatry appointments and check in with your loved one to see if they want to do it on their own, right? Because this might be one area where they may just want that privacy, right? They may want to yeah. share really openly without having their caregiver with them. It's very different than having a caregiver attend chemotherapy or radiation with you um, or a surgery consult. You know, that might be dedicated time, but they actually may also want the caregiver there to provide some collateral on what they're seeing and what issues they're maybe concerned about. So just having that open dialogue of like, do you want me here? Do you not want me here? You know, yeah. um, and definitely not assuming that, that they do want that person with them. Um, that's the first point. The second point I would say is um, advocating and, and talking to the oncologist, I think about um, the oncologist or any physician about like, who do you recommend? You know, do you work with a therapist mm. in the community? Do you know any psychiatrists taking patients? And even asking the question will put it on that person's radar to start to develop those resources if they don't already have those community connections. Um, many providers do know of people in the community. So um, putting that question out there, I think, is one way to remove access issues, because the more that providers know that their patients want these services, the more they're going to advocate for them in the clinics. And then they're also going to start to build that network because they're going to know that their, their patients want this support. Um, so talking about it, right, being open about your experience, if you're comfortable doing it, I think is one way to help remove access just in general. I think that's a really yeah. great point because you're, you know, trying to find someone, whether you're a cancer survivor or not, it is really overwhelming to make those calls because 
in that moment that you're making a call or you're seeking that help, you're also having to confront the fact that you are having these feelings, right? It's never Absolutely. just a phone call. It's never just a internet shirt. It's a reminder that you're experiencing and there's a whole stigma attached to even experiencing these emotions as all at all, yeah. um, especially if it's wrapped around survivor's guilt. And I could just go on and on and on, wow. but I thought that was a really great point that you made kind of giving that you know, realistic view of what the process is because it can be so overwhelming that when you don't know what is ahead of you and what you mm -hmm. could expect, it can become very discouraging to stop yourself from yeah. getting help. And I think it's an incredible point that you made about caregivers finding their own help and that how we manage other people's emotion. I know for, and I've, you know, been honest about this with, with people and with my partner, but the first time I experienced cancer, it was a very, very hard struggle because it was me experiencing my own emotions and then me um, tr feeling like I had to cancer the right way so other people can feel better about themselves or what they're experiencing. And when you, you know, if you go to support groups or, you know, even Instagram and see people's stories and read people's stories, it's really, there's a lot of the same theme of, you know, people around me just made me feel like I needed to just be happy and resilient and be that warrior. And it's yeah. like, how, how do we, how do we break through that both as yeah. survivors and as caregivers? Like, how can we get past that common experience? Yeah. So first, just, I want to validate that um, it can feel really hard when you have to go through your experience of cancer and then make sure everyone else is okay right? So you're trying to be okay. And then you're also the one checking in with the people in your, your inner circle and what you share with them about what you're going through is going to affect them, right? Um, in some way. And so some people might feel like they have to filter what they share and how they share it, especially if someone in their life they know is going to really struggle with that information because they love them, right? So both processing what you're going through in real time and then also having to be the one to communicate that to other people can be really hard. Um, I think that this is where a lot of those, um, uh, thinking of like caring bridge websites come mm -hmm. into play where people can deliver the information at once in a way that you don't have to share your story or share what you're going through multiple times right? And so that people can receive the message, process it in their own private space, and then come back around to the person, you know, in treatment when they're ready and when the person going through treatment is ready. Um, so that's one thing to think about is like, how do you want your story to be shared with the people you love? You can be someone who before cancer just shared really openly, just had these really close relationships, and then perhaps cancer happens and you want to keep it private and you want to go through it alone and you want to process it on your own and then share maybe a few days out, maybe a few months out, right? Um, so it's really important to recognize that when cancer happens, you may, you may change how you decide to share with people. And when you're managing your emotions, you can't go wrong with being true to what you feel you need in that moment. And one of the core kind of things to come back to um, time and time again is like, I only have control over myself and my emotions mm -hmm. and to lean into that, right? Um, 
that you're responsible for yourself and the people in your life are responsible for their emotions. So when it comes to managing other people's emotions, to just remember that that you're separate, that your emotions are yours and their emotions are theirs. Um, and there's a practice sometimes I'll walk through with people, especially who have um, maybe some boundary issues with people mm. who are having a very emotional response to that person's diagnosis and treatment. Um, it's just meditation with you, you just picturing like this golden orb over your head um, and like going through some deep breathing and picturing the orb just protecting you as it kind of goes down around your body um, like a small film. Um, so if you're someone who wants to work on kind of better navigating where your emotions end and another person's emotions begin, mm. um, sometimes the mindfulness practices or meditations to picture like this is mine and that is theirs um, is one is one practice. Um, I forget the rest of the question, <laughs> but um, I kind of went on a tangent there. No, that was actually very relevant to the question that yeah. I was asking. It was really around, you know, how do we manage our own emotions and understand that, you know, our, mm -hmm. it's not our job, like you said, and I'm, you, you said it more, yeah. you said it with more articulation than ever I could, but that it's not our responsibility yeah. to manage others, but, yeah. but touching on the practices, I would love to know, you know, some other practices that might work for people, um, cancer survivors in particular, when it comes to just kind of working through their own emotions, maybe, you know, managing them or even recognizing that they have them, right? Because there's always that point too of, well, what am I feeling inside? It's not very clear. Like what, what is it? And then all of a sudden, like three mm -hmm. weeks later, you might be breaking down yeah. in the middle of shopping and you don't know why. Right. So it's like, how, oh, what practices can we do to get in touch with yeah. our emotions and also to manage them after we yeah. recognize them? Mm -hmm. I um, often think about our emotions and being able to um, regulate them. Right. So emotional regulation is a skill that you can practice, right? So just like we practice working out or running mm. um, or driving our car or using our smartphones, there are muscles in our bodies that we can really practice flexing so that when we do end up having um, a moment, right, where emotions are strong or elevated, we'll have put in the work where some muscle groups are able to really support us in, in terms of like our response. So for some people, I also, I often lean into mindfulness practices and awareness mm -hmm. practices, um, you know, and meditation is often the word that's used interchangeably with mindfulness, mm -hmm. but it's a little bit different. Meditation is one way to practice mindfulness, but it's not the only way. Um, so one practice, for example, with mindfulness, that's not meditation um, could be um, taking a walk without your phone and noticing all of the sensations of your body, of your environment, of the air, of the sounds around you, of your feet walking on the sidewalk, um, to really just connect with your physical body, notice your breathing, um, and quiet the noise for just a few minutes, right? And it doesn't have mm -hmm. to be anything crazy like a half hour, it could be a five minute walk around your house right? Especially if you're, you're not getting out in the community or you're, um, you're deconditioned, right? So it could just be a walk around your house without any devices, taking in your environment, noticing what's happening, 
is one great way to build awareness um, and to notice your emotions. When you notice an emotion coming up, here's a second practice. I moved from the walking to um, noticing our emotions. When you notice something coming up that you feel is a negative emotion, right? So if you're feeling afraid, you're feeling sad, you're feeling emotional, we often say like, we label this in our brains as a negative thing. What if we started to shift our perspective to noticing our emotions without feeling the need to judge it as a mm -hmm. negative emotion? That this is just an emotion I'm having and it's normal for me to be having this emotion, right? We have this whole spectrum of emotions. Um, and this is just one emotion. It's not good. It's not bad. It's not um, something to place a judgment on. And the same can go like when you're having a really good day, we can be like, oh, like I just, you know, I'm really in, you know, the flow of things today, feeling really good. That is actually also a judgment. It's a judgment towards positive feelings. So when we start to notice that we're all the time naming our judgments as good or bad, or sorry, naming our emotions as good or bad, <laughs> right or wrong, um, we get into this idea of judging our emotions all of the time. So a practice is just very simply noticing that we do that, noticing that we name our emotions as good or bad all of the time, and letting them start to just be, be what they are, right? I'm having this emotion. It's not good. It's not bad. It's intense but I'm going to just sit with it for a moment. I'm not going to make it go away, right? Because I need to feel this for a second. Um, yeah. And then also noticing that you don't always have to run away with an emotion. So um, one other analogy I'll give you is when you're at the airport and you have that baggage claim um, mm -hmm. section where you pick up your luggage and it goes round and round and round. You're sitting there and you're waiting for your, your suitcase to come and you know you're going to grab it. We can think about emotions the same way in thought. So if you're having a thought that is distressing or an emotion that's distressing, you can kind of decide if you're going to pick it up off of the luggage claim or not, or let it kind of keep moving, right? You can look at it from above or maybe think like, okay, that came up. I'm going to let it go for right now. I can, I can come back around to it later if it really needs my attention, but maybe I can let this thought keep going and I don't have to indulge it at this point in the day. That is such a good analogy. I hadn't thought about it that way, but that's amazing. And I think I'm going to have to apply that to my life for sure. But I wanted to get back to like yeah. the negative, positive and yeah. the judgments on our emotions. It makes me think um, about dialectical thinking. So one thing mm -hmm. I often, you know, go, you know, Always. talk to people about, talk to, yeah. you know, go through myself about is that it's okay to be grateful and angry at the same yeah. time. It's okay to be um, worried and um, positive about the future, if you will. Uh, and it just, yeah, both could be true at the same time, because we are such, you know, we're a multitude of emotions, right. And I find that a lot of cancer survivors, like I said, myself included, we really do struggle with that because it's like we're, we're we feel as if um, we have to be grateful all the time because we're alive. We have to have that gratitude. And while that gratitude can serve us really well, you know, we tend to maybe push aside those emotions that would be labeled as negative, right? How can we you know, really let that seep in that like, we are allowed to feel multiple things at once. Yeah. Wow. Um, so if anyone's interested in learning more about 
dialectics. So dialectical behavioral therapy in oncology is a niche and it is very helpful for people, I think sometimes because it is very grounded in radically simple concepts, like exactly what you just said, right? That that I can be happy and I can also be angry, right? I can be having a good day and I can also be um, sad about something that happened, right? Um, that both things can be true. Um, so I think your question was how can people say that last word again? How can we let, I guess, how can we let it seep in, right? Because I like, think part of our, yeah. yeah, part of our, yeah, you're right. Because it's interesting because it's one thing to say it and it's one thing to practice this. And it's another thing entirely to believe it with your whole being and to really believe it. And when you're saying it out loud, you want it to be true. And so I think like anything, the way we talk to ourselves really influences our thoughts and that influences our actions. So the more we practice certain ways of talking to ourselves and being, that does have a positive effect. So not to say that you're like positive thinking is not what I am advocating for here. I'm advocating for recognizing the way that we feed certain emotions and feed certain thoughts and um, just noticing that we can balance it in different ways by practicing new ways of thinking and talking to ourselves and um, and just uh, affirming our path and our emotions. So it might be something like um, today was hard. That's a, that's an affirming statement, right? Today was hard. It's validating to the person, right? You don't have to do anything about that thought or that emotion, but just to recognize that today was hard, right? And what do I need to do today to improve the moment just a little bit, right? Um, knowing that it was a hard day. I don't need to make the day better. I don't need to redo it. I don't need to hash it over with somebody, but I just need to name that it was hard and that's okay, right? It's okay for it to just be hard. Um, Back to really quickly, the idea of managing other people's emotions is I think some people might want to try to fix that for the person. And sometimes what people really need is just to be able to say, this is how I felt today. And I don't want you to fix it. And I don't want you to give me advice. I just want you to be someone that I can talk to and you will listen. And I can say this thing without you wanting to fix it or make it better. We can't make it better, right? There's no making it better today. Um, Yeah. I was going to say that reminds me of the book, The Whole Brain Child, and they have a section in there about like naming it to tame it, right? That sometimes it's just really about being able to name the emotion without that judgment that you're talking like without judgment for us to really like actually let it go, you know? Yeah, yeah. thinking also, what are some other beyond mindfulness? Like what are some other practices that, you know, we can do to, you know, help us, you know, cope with our emotions when we don't have access to a therapist, right? Or we may not find comfort in support groups. You know, what can we do for ourselves? What other, some other things we can do for ourselves? Um, You know, so related to mindfulness, but separate could be, um, writing your emotions. Writing is private. It's a private space. Writing can also feel overwhelming when you're not feeling well, right? It can feel like another thing you have to do. 
So something really simple, like um, writing down one or two lines a day or writing one line, one affirmation, um, affirmations, practicing affirmations, and also creating your own affirmations can be um, one particular kind of mindfulness practice, but it's kind of separate. Um, if you feel well enough to take short walks or time outside or changing your environment, change your perspective, that can feel um, very, very therapeutic and can kind of change your emotions. Again, if you're feeling well enough to take short walks and you're able to, um, or able to change your environment and being outside, um, uh, one small thing. Um, I really like that you differentiate, you know, what, what can you do if you don't have access to a therapist, right? And um, I think support groups can be a good fit for some people. It may not be the right fit for all people at different points in their treatment and survivorship. Um, some people might recognize that hearing too much about other people's experiences actually is not the thing that helps them. So also recognizing that when you try on different things, when you're looking for help, that you're not wrong if something worked for another person and it didn't work for you. Like, so to really honor that, um, thinking about other exercises. Um, I think that we're, we're meaning makers as mm -hmm. a species, right? Like, so just as a species, we want to better understand why things happen or what is the purpose of what I'm going through? Does it have a larger meaning? Sometimes um, for people that means leaning into their faith if they are aligned with the faith. Sometimes meaning is not associated at all with faith and it's more about just finding a purpose within your disease. I think that might be why you see a lot of people um, become involved in community organizations, right? Either during treatment or following when they're, when they're a little bit past their treatment. Um, because they, they've now gone through this and they want to make a difference. They want to make an impact. Um, so they're going to help people in the future, right? So I think that's one way that people probably manage their emotions is, is just being there for other people and sharing their experience and taking, um, taking what they went through and making some meaning out of it. Yeah, I know that that was true for me for sure, which is how I got involved in the KCA and doing what I do as a fitness coach for people with kidney oh, wow. issues. Um, I did want to pivot though, um, about the parent child relationship, because I think that is a much wow. different though related beast to managing your own emotions. I think myself as a parent, I have an eight year old son. He, um, He's going through his own, right? I, I was able to find him free counseling with Wonders and Worries, which is an wow. excellent group here in Texas that's focused on children whose loved ones have or had cancer. And then there's also Camp Kesem, Kesem actually, uh, which is for children, same thing, whose wow. parents have and had cancer. And they meet, you know, once a year in camp and they are able to like share their experience with other kids, mm -hmm. especially if they're in a school where they don't have that, right? But as a, and, and that is, you know, something that I do for him because I know that he, he needs it. Right. But mm -hmm. as a parent, as his parent, seeing what he goes through and I'm going to try not to cry about this, but it's hard for me to not blame myself 
for having had cancer twice, like having had it twice in such a short, short period as well. Um, how for parents specifically, how, how can we, you know, I, don't, I guess, reconcile that feeling, you know, work through that feeling um, and maybe even, you know, talk to our kids about it, you know, to a certain point, because uh, granted, I'm not going to talk to an eight-year-old about me blaming myself, right? That's not, oh you know, mentally yeah. okay for him, but, yeah. you know, how can we reconcile that and really, you know, wow. navigate that dynamic? Yeah. Well, I definitely think kids know a lot more than we sometimes give them credit for, right? So that's yes. what, one of the big things whenever people are talking about like, well, how do I share my diagnosis with my child and how do I involve them to the point that you're comfortable involve them, right? Let them know what's happening because sometimes they'll create their own story if you don't let them in on what, what's happening, right? Um, not always, right? So there yeah. are some things that, you know, are not, you know, you don't share everything. Um, maybe with, you know, your child, depending on their age, but the more you feel comfortable including them so that they know what's happening age appropriately, um, that, that can be very, um, can feel, um, safe for them to, to be read in on the experience so that they don't have to create their story around it. Um, and I think it's okay to share some, some emotions with them as well, right? You're modeling for them what it's like to go through something that was unexpected and hard. And it might be their first experience of recognizing that hard things can happen and we can learn to cope. And you as their parent are really modeling for them how to cope effectively and with ease on the best of days and on the hardest of days. And sometimes that means like, I just don't know where to go today with this, like, um, and asking them for their input on, you know, like, hey, mommy had a hard day yesterday, you know, I'd really like to do something special. What what ideas do you have for us to mm -hmm. spend some time together today? Like, what would you like to do today? You know, within reason, maybe give them yeah. two choices, you know, because <laughs> then you could be on your way to Disney World. Um, but um, getting their input um, and helping them, um, to let them know that they can also um, ask questions, right? Um, and um, yeah, and I think I'm talking about this in the in the scope of like the parent being the person going mm -hmm. through cancer. Um, I guess my other question for you is is you know um, um, you know the other can sometimes be true as well, right? When mm -hmm. the child is the person going through cancer. And, um, you know, maybe the child is um, under the age of 18, maybe they're in their early 20s, maybe they're older, right? And then their parents also involved. Um, this, is, this is a really interesting topic that I'm not so aware in the pediatric oncology realm, mm -hmm. but um, definitely is worth talking about more. For sure. And, and to that, I have a couple of questions um, then. I think- yeah with children, what can we do beyond modeling our own emotions? Yeah. Like, what can we do to help them, you know, navigate their own beyond maybe putting them into a counseling service? Yeah. Um, they may not want to even if you know, right. whether they're over 18 or under, they may right, not want right. to. Um, That's a good point. But what are some other things that we can impart on them or maybe talk to them honestly about about the way they can navigate their emotions and talk about it? Mm -hmm. You know, we can't force them to talk to yeah. us. But what can we guide right. them with? Right, right, absolutely. 
well, they're going to take your lead, right? So if they know they can talk about it, that's always a really good place to start. And even if mm -hmm. they choose not to, that's okay, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, because you're right, there could be a part of this where you might think that your child wants therapy or needs therapy, but that may not be where they're at right then and there, right? Like they might want to go to their team sport and just be with their friends, right? And they may want to just kind of um, continue living their life as it was before and not, you know, maybe making any changes or being a part of any groups that might change, right? So kind of yeah. being on standby, doing check-ins at time, from time to time about, you know, um, you know, how are you feeling? Do you want to, have you thought any more about joining this group? You know, there's these other yeah. kids that um, also have parents that have a cancer diagnosis or had a cancer diagnosis. Is that something that interests you? And their answer might change over time, right? So recognizing that maybe if they um, aren't ready for something one month, keep checking in about it because that could change, right? Um, and they could not bring it up themselves, right? So they may not know how to bring it up themselves if something's offered to them once and then not circled back around again, right? So um, so if you can keep checking in on them on their, with their emotions, um, as well in finding out, you know, are you still, um, are you still feeling like you want to be going to soccer on Monday nights or do you want to stay home with me on Monday nights? You know, it's my treatment day. Um, I know that sometimes you're, you're wondering if I'm okay after treatment, do you want to stay home with me or do you want to go, you know, to your extracurricular activity? Um, and just not assuming that it's going to be the same from week to week, but you know, that they might really need to keep being involved in that conversation ongoing. And I want to get back to the pediatric oncology. I know that yeah. that's necess not necessarily your specialty, but mm -hmm. as parents who have children going through cancer, what can they do to help their child manage what they're yeah. experiencing without centering themselves, right? You know, you want to make sure in that situation right. that, especially since they're still developing, that they really you know, yeah. can have that handle. Yeah. How, do, how do parents help their children in that way? Right. Well, the good news is, is to my knowledge, there's usually a pretty strong network of people that get involved anytime a child has a cancer diagnosis. So you will have, you know, a pediatric oncology social worker. Usually that person is linking up with the school okay. therapist or school social worker and kind of making a connection and making a net for really to support that person, that child and that family. So luckily parents have those supports to really lean into. So that's really my, my first, that would be my first suggestion is find out who those people are, find out who those champions are gonna be for you and your family during that time at the cancer center, at the school, in the community. And um, you don't have to do it all as the parent, right? Like this is obviously your child, your life. I'm four months postpartum. So I'm just like, I can't even imagine. Yeah. Um, but that, um, you know, to lean into your networks, to find out who your support people are. And it's hard because I imagine as the parent, you become both the parent and then the manager of your child's healthcare. And that is like a full-time job in and of itself. Um, so to notice what can be delegated to other family members, maybe another partner in the family, other adults in the family, um, and just know that sometimes if you can delegate the healthcare management responsibilities so you can be the parent, I wonder if that 
could be could be helpful for everybody, right? Because there's yeah. that line gets really grayed. Yeah. Um, well, I know we have about 10 yeah. minutes left. Um, so I wanted to pivot to survivorship, right? You right. know, um, there are, I think during treatment there are, and during survivorship there, I think a, maybe differing, differing emotions, right? There's still yeah. things that cross over, but they're, you know, one's more present and then one's kind of like worrying about the future. Maybe there's more of that, like there's a term I want to say that the projection of what the future may yeah. look like what are some right. ways that we can you know kind of calm those yeah. voices right because scan scan anxiety mm. is always going to be a thing right like we're always going to be worried about yeah. whether it'll come back whether it'll be a new primary yeah. you know what are we going to do are we going to die from this it's you know I've heard people say and I kind of believe this myself that survivorship can be more traumatic than treatment itself because there's so much that's uncertain yeah, so how yeah. How do we, you know, what are some ways, what are some things that we could say to ourselves beyond like the practices you gave us? What are things that we need to remember to, you know, work through that? Oh my gosh. So I think like people probably sometimes wonder, like, am I the only one who's ever felt this way? So first knowing that it is so common to be worried about the future, when you stop going through active treatment, like chemotherapy, radiation and surgery, those are very, um, there's a lot of movement in behind those things, right? So you're busy, you're involved, you're taking action, action um, actionable steps towards managing your cancer. And when you are finished with those things, when you're going into survivorship, those actionable steps just look very different, right? Mm -hmm. They get spread out. So going to your quarterly appointments, um, taking your, um, you know, your, your oral medications can feel like not as maybe um, actionable as what your active treatment was, but those are still actionable steps, right? They are just your management of your cancer has changed. Um, and it may just look like you have a little less contact with your oncologist, um, but they are there, right? They're there for you. They're waiting in the wings and they are, um, you know, so I we talked about affirmations earlier. Affirmations can kind of come back in here, right? Where you might say to yourself, you know, I'm doing everything I need to do today to manage my cancer, right? Like I'm, I've done everything I need to do. There's nothing else I need to do today except be with my family, right? Mm -hmm. um, my oncologist has my best interests at heart. My oncologist is um, looking out for me in every way. Um, because we wonder, like, what are we not doing, right? So that's really where that anxiety mm -hmm. comes from, is that fear of, is there something else I should be doing that I'm not doing right now? And so to just recognize that that emotion is valid, but, um, or I should say, and how much we feed that, right? Mm -hmm. Noticing that and noticing if you can reframe your thought from what am I not doing to, I've done everything that I can do to manage this, right? I've done the work, right? Yeah. Um, and now it's time giving myself permission to, to, to be okay with those, those um, less frequent visits, right? And to see if you can get a little bit back of your life that maybe was on pause when you were in active treatment, right? I don't know um, how to 
you know, tell someone not to worry about the future because that's just, it's just normal, right? It's a really normal emotion and it's a normal coping strategy for a really unusual experience that people have gone through. So, you know, just noticing that your emotions are valid whenever you're feeling them, you don't have to push them away. Um, Some days are going to be better than others. Um, you know, and some people really start to lean into those support groups after treatment when they have that time, you know, revisit it. If it's something that wasn't a good fit for you during treatment, maybe a survivor's group is a better fit, you know, once Mm -hmm. you're finished with treatment. Um, Figuring out who your people are, you know, like who is your safe person? Sometimes it's nice to identify someone Uh, in your life, who's a good friend, maybe not the best friend, maybe a good friend, Uh, maybe not your spouse, maybe not your, your sibling or your, your parent, but someone who you can ask, like, Hey, can you be my person? Because sometimes it's too big for me to, to talk to my spouse about this, right? Sometimes I just need a really good friend, Um, putting that person on standby in the wings. And, um, you know, that's actually, um, one thing you can do at, at all parts in your life is just kind of um, recognizing who you want your, your go-to person to be and letting them know ahead of time, like, hey, I think of you and I think of like who my person is going to be on a hard day. Like, I just want you to know that I've, I've literally named you and um, putting you in my phone as that person. That is such a good piece of advice. And I want, I want, before I let you go, I want to double Mm -hmm. down on one thing that what we're feeling at any stage of our journey is normal. I think it's so easy to forget and that what we're feeling is normal. I think it's Mm -hmm. so easy to convince ourselves that we are the only one who's feeling this way Mm -hmm. and we're not normal for it. So just doubling the down on the fact that our emotions are normal and that's okay, I think is really important. Yeah. I, before I let you go, I do want to ask, is there anything else that you may want to add that maybe I forgot to touch on or that you wanted to make, bring up as a point? I think we covered so much. This was such a good conversation. So I'm good. I'm glad. You. I'm glad um, you thought so. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think just to reaffirm what you just said is that you are having a normal experience to a very um, difficult event. And there is no guidebook that people hand out for how to do this, right? So, you know, any way you're doing it is the right way. Um, It's the right way for you and for your family. So you know your family best and you know yourself best. Thank you so much. And I very much enjoyed the conversation. So I'm glad to hear that you did as well. So thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you, Anna Maria. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Kinney Cancer Unfiltered, brought to you by the Kinney Cancer Association. Please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts to get episodes weekly. And if you like the show, we'd love it if you left a review. It really helps others find us. Thanks again for listening. For more information about kidney cancer, visit the Kinney Cancer Association online at kidneycancer.org.